I would like to start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we're so grateful, we're so thankful, Lord, for uh, the fact that your son Jesus Christ came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect holy life that we could never live, perfectly according to the law of Moses, uh, and then died on the cross, Father, in our place for the fact that we can't live according to the law, uh, for the fact that we're sinners, Lord. He died for us, and his blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and atoned for, And then he rose from the grave, Lord, to ascend to heaven and sit at your right hand, as the word says, forever to make intercession on our behalf. And because he's risen from the grave, the sacrifice that he made was not just one time, but it's forever and ever because he lives. And so he is a living sacrifice. And we pray and ask, Lord God, as we celebrate that resurrection this morning and we talk about the awesome power of your holy word and the prophecies that were spoken uh, long before Jesus was born about his birth, about his life, death, and resurrection, Father, we ask and pray that you would bless this truth to our hearts, Lord. We pray for our friends who may be watching, who maybe don't know you, maybe who don't have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Lord God, that you would speak to their hearts this morning, that you would encourage them and you would reveal to them, Father, how much you truly love them, Father. We pray that you would help those of us who do know Jesus, Lord, who do have a relationship with you, Father, to be light and to be salt, just as we've been called to be. So we love you, we praise you, we glorify you, and we thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today is Easter. And so, of course, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is probably one of the, if not the most glorious, amazing, awesome thing that God has ever accomplished in the history of all things. You remember when Jesus Christ was alive and he was ministering to his disciples and they marveled at the miracles that he did. And he said, you'll be able to do greater things than this. And he talked about if they had faith like a mustard seed, they would be able to say to a mountain, be removed from your place and be, and be, and be, and be tossed to the side, and it would be so. And, and, and I remember reading that as a young man, thinking, what could he possibly be talking about? Certainly, he doesn't think that we're going to be able to, or his will is not for us to literally pick up mountains and move them. What was Jesus talking about when he said that? Well, I believe with all of my heart that the miracle that Jesus Christ was talking about was a person who is dead in their sins, a person who is separated from God, a person who by their very nature is at enmity with God, being made whole, being made alive, being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ and brought, as the Bible says, out of darkness into his glorious light and being made sons of the Most High, daughters of the Most High, having an actual relationship with him through Jesus Christ. As far as I'm concerned, that's a mountain being removed from its place. That's the miracle that Jesus was talking about. Greater than walking on water, greater than the healing of someone with leprosy or the man with the withered hand or those who are blind or deaf is a person whose very nature is changed. A person whose spirit is dead in sin, being made alive miraculously because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what Easter is all about. And we're going to talk about the resurrection, and we're going to talk about the power of the resurrection. We're going to talk about the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection. But first I want to talk about the resurrection as it pertains to our faith, as to believing in it. There's a lot of people out there who may believe in God. There's a lot of people out there who may even believe in Jesus, may believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that have a hard time grasping the concept of the resurrection. Maybe have a hard time grasping the concept of a lot of the miracles within the Bible. 
I think we have to be realistic as believers and understand that people who are outside of the kingdom of God, people who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a lot of the things that they read in the Bible don't make sense to them. They're impossible, so many of these things. And indeed, they are impossible. So what would make someone believe in the impossible? And I think that that's a question that every Christian should be willing and able to answer. So before we talk about why someone would believe the impossible, let me preface it by saying this. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe, first of all, that he is that he exists, and secondly, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the scripture says. Faith is what brings a person to God. Faith is what brings a person to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is never going to be simply because they were convinced, because they were shown enough proofs and shown enough evidence that they were convinced that God was real. Faith has to always go along with it. Because of exactly what I said and what the scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to come to God. There has to be an element of faith there. Those people who don't have faith, those people who don't believe because they don't want to believe, are never going to be convinced. Faith is a necessary ingredient for coming to God, for coming to Jesus Christ. Faith is essential. But this does not mean that our faith is baseless or blind. It doesn't mean that. But what separates the Bible from any other holy book in the history of the planet is prophecy. It's the prophecies of Scripture that set it apart. It's the prophecies of Scripture, that is, things that God said were going to happen, things that God spoke beforehand that in the course of time over history came to pass just as God said they would. That's what separates the Bible from other holy books. Uh, and if you begin to study the prophecies from Scripture for yourself uh, and see the ones that have been fulfilled, you begin to see beyond what we can understand because of the impossibility that prophecy fulfillment is. And you begin to make that gap. You see, prophecy is a bridge, it's a link between the physical world that we understand and the spiritual world that we don't understand. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now when we think of something that we're hoping for, we're thinking of something that's intangible. But notice what it says here. The writer of Hebrews calls it the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, it seems to go completely against itself. It seems to completely contradict itself within this very sentence. What do you mean substance and evidence? I think that prophecy is one of the key things that link the impossible with the possible, that link the material with the immaterial, that helps someone who has eyes to see, who wants to believe, who has a heart of faith, that helps them to see that God indeed is real, the Word is real, it is true, that what God has said is true, and that we can trust in it, and we can believe in it. If I can see and believe that the impossible has been done through the fulfillment of prophecy, then I can also believe that God exists. And once you believe that God exists, if you think about it, if you take that to its natural conclusion, if you believe that God exists, as an atheist would put it, if you believe that the invisible man in the sky exists, 
If you believe that he's real, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, then at that point in time moving forward, any talk of impossibility becomes absurd. And prophecy is that bridge, it's that link. So let's jump right into it. I want you to turn with me, and it's going to be up on your screen, but if I want you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, uh, to Psalms, the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at chapter 22. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading down through portions of Psalm 22, and I'm going to be giving you New Testament references that are the fulfillment of the things spoken in this psalm. Now, you have to understand that the psalms were written mostly by King David, okay, who was the second king in the history of the nation of Israel after Saul. He was the second king, and he lived approximately 1,000 years before Jesus was born. David lived and ruled and reigned approximately 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was born. But this is what King David writes in the book of Psalms, chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46 in the New Testament is where Jesus says this from the cross. As Jesus Christ, for the first time in the history of the universe, is separated from God the Father because our sins have been laid on him, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David prophesied about it a thousand years before that. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Verses 7 and 8. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27 and verse 43, we have the account of the Pharisees standing at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus Christ. Let God save him. He claimed to trust in God. Let God save him. If you're the Messiah, bring yourself down from the cross. This is exactly what David foretold a thousand years earlier. He says in verses 12 to 18, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 and verses 16 through 20, we have the soldiers bringing Jesus into the praetorium, surrounding him, mocking him, beating him, laughing at him, putting the crown of thorns upon his head. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Now, during the Roman crucifixion, as the cross was lifted up, after the person was nailed to the cross, as the cross was lifted up and dropped into the hole to help it stand firm, the bones of a person, the limbs of a person would literally come out of joint. Their bodies would become a racked mess. And, and people on the cross usually actually died of asphyxiation because of the absolute uh, awful position that it put all the parts of their body into. It says, my tongue clings to, the, to, to my jaws. John chapter 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. We have this portion where Jesus is on the cross, 
and he cries out. Now, earlier, remember, in the crucifixion, they had offered him the vinegar mixed with gall. It was kind of like to numb his senses, to dull the pain, and Jesus had flatly refused this drink. But at the end of the crucifixion, towards the end, before Jesus, the Bible says, yielded up his spirit, he actually cried out, I thirst. And they brought that mixture to him, and they gave some to him. Why? Right before he died. Because what happened during crucifixion was severe dehydration as well. And literally, his tongue was swollen and stuck to the roof of his mouth where he was unable to speak. And he needed this drink, he needed this liquid to be able to loosen up his tongue to loosen up his mouth so that he could cry out to Telestai, it is finished, literally paid in full before he yielded up his spirit. The psalmist continues, you have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Listen to this. They pierced my hands and my feet I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And of course, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 and verse 24, we read about the soldiers dividing Jesus' garments and casting lots, or literally gambling over them to who would take them. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to be going to Isaiah chapter 53. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 53. Now, Isaiah the prophet lived and prophesied approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ. So again, this is long before Jesus was even born. And this is what the uh, prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah in chapter 53. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the Gospel of John chapter 11, verses 49 to 52, we have this strange portion, and it's right after Jesus Christ rose Lazarus from the grave, and the chief priests were gathered together to talk about that event and what they should do about it. They even talked about possibly putting Lazarus to death because of the testimony he was towards Jesus Christ. And one of the things that the high priest Caiaphas said in the midst of their debate is that it's better that one man should die than an entire nation. And the Bible actually says in the Gospel of, um, excuse me, the Gospel of John, uh, hold on, I'm, I'm sorry, Gospel of John chapter 11, verses 49 to 52, it actually says that Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. But God was speaking through him to prophesy that Jesus was going to die for the nation, just as Isaiah said. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and verses 3 through 5. Jesus, standing before Pontius Pilate, if you remember, he opens not his mouth. He doesn't say a word. All these accusations that are coming against him. Remember, Pontius Pilate marveled at this, that Jesus didn't cry out, that Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, all these things are not true. All these things are a lie. As a matter of fact, the scourging that Jesus received, one of the most terrible parts of the crucifixion process was the beating that he received by the the soldiers using the cat of nine tails before he was led away to be crucified. That scourging was meant to bring out confession. Every time that they laid the lash down and pulled it off and those bits of clay and glass and bone that were in the whip on the tails of that whip would pull away the flesh of the person being beaten with it. And they would cry out and they would scream in agony and they would confess to everything. And the scripture says that Jesus was silent because he had nothing to confess. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 and verses 50 to 53, we read about Jesus Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, went and asked for the body of Jesus and then laid Jesus in his own tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. This was a tomb that was only afforded by the wealthy, by the very rich. Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy and rich man, but he was so absolutely devastated and so absolutely believed in who Jesus Christ was that he asked for his body and he laid him in his own grave. We just talked about eight different prophecies from the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, from the Old Testament prophets from 700 to 1,000 years before the birth of Christ that Jesus Christ accomplished just in his death. There are approximately 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, I want to ask you this. What do you suppose the probability is of one man fulfilling those 300 prophecies? Well, as it would happen, some maniacs actually did the math and came up with the odds. They actually put the numbers together, taking all the things into consideration, the the period of time, the amount of people, the circumstances, the history, all of these things, and they came up with some numbers to go along with it. Professor Peter Stoner was his name, is the man who originally came up with this. Uh, He was a mathematics and astronomy professor, and his findings were actually confirmed by the American Scientific Affiliation. And this is what he says, the probability of one person all these years after these prophecies have been made, fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that were told, that were foretold, the probability of one person accomplishing eight, fulfilling eight of those prophecies, is one in 10 to the 28th power. That's one chance in 10 with 28 zeros after it. That's the number. Now, if you're like me, you say, So what? (laughs) The numbers really don't mean a lot to me. Well, he put it in terms that even a guy like me could understand. Let me put it to you like this. You have a silver dollar, and you take one silver dollar, and you put a check mark on it. 
Now, you get enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. And you mix that silver dollar in with that pile of silver dollars. Now, you take your friend who doesn't believe in the Bible, and you blindfold him, spin him around three times, and tell him to go pick out the one silver dollar with the check mark on it. That's the odds we're talking about here of one person fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies spoken about the Messiah. We can go further. Add eight more. 16 prophecies. This would be one in 10 to the 45th power. That's one chance in one with 45 zeros after it. Now you've got to remember as the odds, as the number of prophecies we're talking about being fulfilled increases, the odds against it happening increase astronomically. So <clears throat> one chance in 10 with 45 zeros after it, one in 10 to the 45th power, this is what this would look like to us. This would be taking a ball of silver dollars and the diameter of this ball of silver dollars is the same distance from the center of the earth to the sun times 30. That big of a ball of silver dollars. And your blindfolded atheist friend goes and in one try picks out the one silver dollar with a check mark on it. Now, as you go from there, and we'll stop there, because by the time you get to 48 prophecies, you start talking about the fact that you have to switch from silver dollars. They're too big. You have to start talking about electrons. And now you take a ball of electrons that is, I wrote it down, uh, 6 billion light years in diameter, 500 of those. And your blind atheist friend or your blindfolded atheist friends picks the one electron out of those giant balls. Okay? Absolutely impossible is the point. It's silly. That's 48 prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 300. But for me, the words of Jesus himself and the eyewitness testimony of his disciples is enough. Turn with me now, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read this awesome resurrection story. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. And it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And then they said, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And I want you to see there that after again, it's a period, not a question mark. The angels were not asking them a question. Don't you remember? They were telling them to remember. This is a statement. Remember, remember what he said to you. And it says, and they remembered his words. Now that's Luke chapter 24, 
If we back up to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, when Jesus was still with them, Luke 18, 31 to 34, it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things, notice, that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Notice, but they understood. How many of these things? None of these things. Don't feel bad. He, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, it's interesting to me, because there's all of these prophecies in the Old Testament from Isaiah, from David and others, talking about the Messiah, and how he would be cut off, and how he would be put to death, and how he would be beaten, and that it would be for our interest. And Jesus reiterated this to his disciples time and again. He told them. At one point in time, Peter got so upset that he began to rebuke Jesus. He began to rebuke Jesus. That's that famous portion of scripture when God, when Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, because you can't discern the things that are from God and the things that are from men. That's why he said that to Peter, because Peter was literally saying, God forbid that the prophecies be fulfilled. And Jesus had to put Peter in check at that point in time. You don't understand these things now, Peter. But he told them time and time again. And it's so funny how people can be. It's so funny how you can tell people time and time and time again. And there's just an unwillingness or an inability even to understand or to hear. But once God makes it known, once God makes it clear to a person, that's why it has to come through faith. That's why it has to happen by faith. Because once God shows something to a person, once God reveals something to a person, you can never unsee it. You can never unsee it from that point forward. Now, Jesus, in debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus had said to this to them, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, the resurrection. Jesus spoke of it long before he was even put to death. Now, here's where it all dovetails together into our faith. And this is how it is absolutely, you cannot separate the resurrection from the faith that we have. You cannot separate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead from the gospel. It goes together. It has to be together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8 and then 12 to, 20, 12 to 23. And this is what Paul says as he writes his letter to the church in Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see that? According to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, 
then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once who saw the risen Lord, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, that is, died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Now, skipping down to verse 12 to 23, here's what Paul says. And he's chiding the Corinthian church because some of them were saying there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. And here's what he says. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, you can't separate that from the gospel, then how do some, of, uh, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise for if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile you are still in your sins then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ We are of all men the most pitiable. Well, here's the good news. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. He explains, For as in Adam all die, that is to sin, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. The resurrection is central to our faith. It is central to our belief system because Jesus Christ is the lamb, the, the spotless, perfect lamb. As John the Baptist said, remember when Jesus came down to be baptized at the Jordan River and John said, what did he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now what's the difference between Jesus Christ dying and his blood being shed for our sins and a lamb being put to death and its blood shed for the sins of the people? Well, an animal sacrifice had to be offered over and over and over again simply because once that sacrifice was dead, That sacrifice was finished. If you went forward and sinned again from that point, you had to have your sins atoned for all over again. But Jesus Christ, that's why Paul said, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and Jesus didn't rise. You're still in sin. You're still in your sins. You haven't been saved. But Jesus rose from the dead, and so he remains our living sacrifice. He is both our high priest, and he is the sacrifice. And he is our intercessor because the Bible says he sits at the right hand of God forever to make intercession on our behalf. When Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he had ever done or spoken was established or confirmed. This is the authority behind the gospel message. Anyone can claim to be Christ. Anyone can say that they are the way, the truth, and the life. But when the person who says these things, you watch them killed in a brutal fashion, you watch them put into a grave, and then on the third day they rise from that grave, you better pay attention now. Because that person is true. His rising from the grave establishes everything. And let me say to you that just outside of Jerusalem today, there is an empty tomb. 
There is today an empty tomb, and it's empty because the man who was killed and laid in that grave rose up from that grave, and let me further say that he lives today, and he lives to make intercession on your behalf to God the Father. He is your go-between, between you and God. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. That's the Jesus Christ that we serve and believe in. Every single disciple save one died because they would not recant that Jesus had risen from the dead and they had seen him. Peter watched his family from the dungeon. He watched his family. He watched his wife crucified. And he would not recant that Jesus had risen from the grave. And then uh, Peter was let out and he was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same fashion as my Lord. Because he would not recant that Jesus had risen from the grave. And all of the disciples in like fashion went to their graves because they would never, ever deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. What's that to you? (laughs) Well, the Christian faith is this. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a life of holy perfection. He died on the cross for our sins. And on the third day rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven. And what that means is that we can now do what Jesus told Nicodemus when he sneakily came to Jesus in the middle of the night. The teacher of Israel, Jesus called him, and he said, how can a man inherit eternal life? How can a man go to heaven? The age-old question. How does a man go to heaven? How does a person go to heaven? And Jesus said these words, you must be born again. And he talked to him about being born again of the Spirit. Jesus didn't die on the cross and he didn't raise to new life because of our good deeds. And he didn't do it so that we could go to church or be a part of some religious organization. Jesus Christ did all of these things so that we could be born again. So that we could have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And why? Why did he do all of this fellowship, relationship, He didn't do it again so we could go to church, so that we could be religious. He did it so that we could have a restored relationship with him. That's how you go to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how you go to heaven. It's not through attending a church. It's not through being a part of a particular religious group or sect or denomination. The only way that you go to heaven is because you have a relationship with God and the only way that we can have a relationship with God is be by being born again of the Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord who rose from the grave. Relationship, that's what it's all about. That's why the Holy Scriptures compare our relationship with Jesus Christ to that between a husband and a wife. It's a spiritual love relationship. And that's how we gain access to the Father. A lot of people say, I believe in God and Jesus, and even that he died and rose for me, but that's not the same thing as having a relationship with him. That's not the same thing as being born again. And so if you guys want to grab the juice, if you want to grab your crackers, 
<laughs> or your bread or whatever it is that you pulled off to the side, hopefully, to share in communion with us. I would like to take this opportunity to invite you, every single one of you out there listening today, if you have not said these words, not just said, yeah, I believe in God, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, I believe even that he rose from the dead, but if you haven't said these words, Jesus, I believe in you, I believe that you're the Son of God, I believe that you came born of a virgin, I believe that you lived a perfect sinless life, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave, I believe that you're at the right hand of the Father to make intercession on my behalf, and I want to ask you, if you've never said this with your mouth, if you've never uttered these words, I want to ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart, to be my Lord and my Savior, to be the one who governs my life, that I wouldn't be the one that runs my life anymore, but you would be the one that runs my life. If you've never said that, then I would invite you to take the juice or whatever it is that you have, or the matzah or the unleavened bread or whatever it is that you have, and I would invite you to pray this prayer with me as you receive. This is what communion is. It's fellowship. When Jesus broke bread with his disciples, he was literally having a Passover meal with them, and he changed everything during that one Passover meal when he said, this is the blood now of the new covenant. It's not just the same wine that you drank at Passover all of these years since your youth. There's something new that's happening now here, and I want you to share it with me. I want you to share it, and when you have the fruit of the vine, and when you have the bread, I want you to think of my body that was broken for you. I want you to think of my blood that was poured out for you, that was shed for you. And I want you to literally break bread with me and have a meal with me. It's a very, it's a very intimate act of fellowship in that culture. You didn't just break bread with anyone. You certainly would never break bread with a sinner or someone who you thought was not a good person or an enemy, only with those people that you trusted and that you loved. And Jesus says today, I want to share a meal with you. So I would invite you and I would ask you, before we take these, that you would pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I come before you in, in the name of God, and I come before you and I ask that you would be my Lord and my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you died for me, that I needed you as a Savior, and I believe that you died on the cross for me, and I believe that you rose from the grave, and I believe that you are with the Father today, making intercession on my behalf. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come into my heart and that you would be my personal Lord and Savior, that you would make me born again of the Spirit, that you would be my Lord and my God, and that you would dictate and govern my life from this day forward, and I wouldn't just do things my own way, but it would be you working in me and through me. And I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, and we share this together in his name. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for this time of communion that we can share together, knowing that you want fellowship with us and that we can break bread with you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, for all of our brothers and sisters out there, Lord, who may have prayed along with us here. We ask that you would be with them, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that you would begin to intercede in their life and that you'd begin to speak to their hearts, Lord. you begin to draw them closer to you and help them to have that hunger and that thirst for righteousness, Lord, that can only come through being born again. I pray, Father, that you would bless them. I pray that you would bless their homes. I pray that you would bless their families. I pray that you would watch over them and protect them, Lord, that you would keep them safe. 
I pray, Father, for those who, out there, who are out there who may be sick. I pray that you would touch them and heal them, Lord. And if healing isn't your will, Father, I pray that you would help them to have the faith to trust in you through the sickness, Lord, through whatever it is that they may be going, going through in their lives, that they would trust in you and allow you to use it in their lives to draw them closer to you, Father. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, everybody. God bless you.